The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Uh, Luke 13, let's go there. We're looking at uh, the last part of chapter 13, uh, verses 31 and following. And while you're, before we start, I have a question for you. As always, Pastor Cliff's always got a question or two. These are just review because it's been a while. Um, Because I I don't want to lose the continuity of where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. If you have not been with us, actually, just because it's been five or six weeks since we were in the Gospel of Luke, it's always good to go back. We, We record these on YouTube, so go back and listen to the last message in preparation for the next one, and then you'll be caught up to speed on what's going on in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, or if you just missed the message, the last one where I was in Luke, it's always good to go back and get caught up, hear the context. You want the whole gospel of Luke as God has given it under the inspiration and the moving of Luke when he wrote this. Uh, it all builds on one another. Very important. Another good discipline or Christian practice for believers, some of you do this, I know this because you've told me, is you want to find out what the message is on the next Sunday and then you read ahead of time uh, to prepare your heart. And your mind for that passage. Oh, okay, we're going to be on uh, Luke 14 next week or at the end of Luke 13. And you're reading it ahead of time. You're meditating on it, thinking about it, praying through it, maybe even doing a little study on your own. So you'll get more out of God's word uh, the day that it's preached if you're able to do that. So uh, if that's not a discipline you've ever considered, I know that many saints benefit from doing that. So to prepare your heart for the next Three Sundays I plan on being in the Gospel of Luke. We'll start here at verse 31, and we will move. I don't know how far we're going to get it, uh, to be honest with you. Um, We'll look at verse 31 and see how the Spirit might lead and uh, how much we can cover in this time. But we will be just moving ahead and hopefully getting over into chapter 14 real soon. So uh, just some review questions for you to get you to think and see what you remember. These are all about basically our study in the Gospel of Luke. So question number one uh, is, being that we're at chapter 13, if you've been in the study with us all this time, we've covered a lot of ground, my question is, how old is Jesus at this time in Luke 13, where we left off and where we are continuing in our ministry? How old is Jesus, do you think? And somebody out there in the audience said he is approximately 33. 33. That would, that's what I would have said, because we know from Luke 3.23 that he began his ministry at age 30, and based on the chronology of what we've covered so far, the Gospel of John in particular, we've gone through a couple of calendar years with feast days, which puts us at the end of Jesus' ministry, so he's got to be around 33 years of age now. Good job. Uh, another question is, how much time is left in Jesus' public ministry? And somebody out there said... Somebody said about six months. That's what I would have said. We don't know exactly, but I've been repeating that. This is the tail end of his ministry. We think, putting the four Gospels together, that his ministry was about three and a half years long. So that would take us from age 30 to uh, age 33. His ministry ended in the springtime at the time of Passover when he was crucified. And we know there's a definite transition in his ministry as we learn from Luke chapter 9, where he had that great Galilean ministry for over a year, year and a half, his hometown, going into all those cities, preaching the gospel, doing miracles. He completed that mission 
And then he told his disciples, okay, we're moving on. There's a transition. We are now headed to Jerusalem where I will be crucified. And along the way, uh, they went across the Jordan River. And pretty much they're going not through Samaria, because the Samaritans are a defiled people, said the Jews. Jesus didn't believe that. But anyway, there was a route that they could take going across the Jordan River and then down on the east side of the Jordan River called the Transjordan, and particularly a narrow area called Perea. Perea, if you looked at your map in your Bible, that's where Jesus has been pretty much since uh, Luke chapter 9 when he said, okay, guys, we're leaving. He's got his 12 apostles. He's got those 70 disciples that he's trained. Like they're, his, uh, they're doing reconnaissance ahead of him, going to towns and knocking on doors and spreading the word, but also finding places where Jesus can stay uh, when they enter into town with his entourage there. Uh, so they're going through the, minute, the area of Perea. And so this is where we think he is mostly in Luke 13 all the way to Luke 19. So this is called Jesus' ministry in Perea. Uh, and he didn't have a ministry to this area a whole, whole lot in those first three years. So this is somewhat unique. It's not his hometown where he grew up, Galilee, and it's also not where the temple is down in Jerusalem. But there are Jews living over there, and it was historically part of the Promised Land. So this is where Jesus is now in the area of Perea. Um, so those are just some questions just to kind of get a context for us so that we're reminded of where Jesus is at. We saw earlier in Luke 12 and 13 that as he goes, he still has, he's got his 12 apostles, he's got his 70 disciples, he's got the women who love and serve him everywhere he goes. Uh, At times he's trying to escape the crowds because the crowds are just following him from everywhere for a lot of different reasons. We've seen that out of fascination. They want to see a miracle. They love free food. Social welfare. And actually there were some sincere followers of Jesus. Varying degrees as to what they understood about his purpose of ministry and who he was. Even his 12 apostles aren't fully enlightened about the significance of who Jesus is and why he came. And they won't get there until he rises from the dead and the Spirit of God lives inside them and then allows them to understand the, the fullness of that. But anyway, so he's got crowds, massive crowds following him everywhere. And no doubt, many followed him from Galilee as he crossed the Jordan, going down uh, south in this region called Perea, heading to Jerusalem eventually because he knows that's where he's going to die for the sins of the world. So that's our context amidst those Massive crowds that are following him and even crushing in on him, as we saw, are his enemies. Remember those guys? The scribes? The Sadducees and the Pharisees? As well as other guys known as Herodians? We've seen them in the shadows, right? Like a pack of coyotes in the bushes along the periphery, dogging him every step of the way, as though he doesn't see or notice them. Every once in a while, they'll open their mouth. Every once in a while, they'll put themselves forward. Every once in a while, as hypocrites, they'll invite him to a meal to try to catch him and trap him. They're in the crowds. Pharisees, his greatest enemies. So here he is. That's where we are. 
we're probably in this region of Perea. We know we're definitely not in Galilee probably anymore because he said we're leaving. We also know he's not in Jerusalem yet for, based on the context we're about to read. So it's very likely that he's in this region called Perea where he hasn't spent, spent a whole lot of time. John the Baptist spent time in Perea because it was next to the Jordan River. So it was a place that Jesus, at least during his ministry and maybe even growing up, many times he would go through Perea, but here he does some pretty significant ministries. Luke gives it to us, uh, chapters 13 through 19. That's the big picture. So let's go ahead and look at our verses for today. So Jesus is moving along. He's preaching. He's doing a lot of spontaneous preaching to the crowds as he's moving, uh, at meals and those kind of things. Um, and then we talked last time, several weeks ago before Christmas, where he was teaching in the villages, uh, Luke 13:22, and Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So he's just going to every city and village and always proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, presenting himself as the Messiah of the Old Testament. As Savior of the world. So that's what he's been doing. And then as he was teaching, we saw last time that somebody shouted out a question, which was pretty typical. And they asked that question, Lord, are there just a few people that are going to be saved? And he didn't answer the question directly, but he answered the question, right? Are just a few people going to be saved? And Jesus' answer, we saw this, was yes and no. A few people are going to be saved, and also many people are going to be saved. That was his answer in that passage. And it was, well, yes, few of the Jews of today who have been exposed to my ministry will be saved. John 1.11 and many other passages. Few. Comparatively speaking, few as opposed, uh, compared to how many should believe. After all, he came to his own. He came to the Jews. It was prophesied. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. And his people, first and foremost, were the Jews, was the nation of Israel. That's The Old Testament was written and given to the Jews. God gave them the covenants and all the promises. So he came to his own. And so those who should have accepted and embraced Jesus more than anybody else was the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel as a whole and collectively as a corporate body who professed to know Yahweh, and Yahweh sends his gift of his Messiah, and they should have embraced him with open arms across the board. The entire nation should have been a revival, bowing to King Jesus. That did not happen, and it should have started with the leadership of Israel because they knew best. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, because they were masters of the Old Testament. They had it memorized. They were the scholars. They were the teachers of the people of the Old Testament. They, they preached about this coming Messiah and Savior. They were the guardians of the, the temple where the sacrifices were. They ran the synagogues where the Jewish people were educated in the Word of God and in the Torah and in the coming Messiah. And the irony is, this leadership who should have known best and who should have been the first to embrace Jesus, they were the ones who led the charge in resisting Jesus as Messiah. For a lot of different reasons. That's why in Luke 13, our last passage, uh, well, are just a few people being saved? Well, technically, yes. Few of the Jews today 
who have been exposed to my three and a half year ministry, few will be saved because few have chosen to follow me. It's the faithful remnant. Remember the faithful remnant? Just the few. Uh, But then he wasn't done with his answer. His second part of the answer was basically saying, few of the Jews, few of you. And by the way, the audience that he's preaching to in Luke 13, 22 and following is nothing but Jewish. There aren't any Gentiles there. His ministry was the Jews. Few of you, sadly, will be saved. But that's not all. Uh, Many actually will be saved. There is a large contingent, a large group of people that will be saved. And that was the end of the passage we saw last time, um, where he condemns them as evildoers. I don't even know, at the end of the age, I'm not even going to know who you are. And you're going to be condemned to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're going to be thrown out of the kingdom of God. And yet there will be others who will come from east and west and from north and south. People are going to come from all over the world. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. That's the Gentiles. Innumerable people will come from east, west, north, and south, and they will recline at the table, table, the table of Abraham in paradise in the presence of God in, heaven, in the kingdom of God. What was he saying? He's saying what he's been saying for three and a half years. God is the savior of the world, not just the Jews. He's also savior of all nations. He's also savior of Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish. That's what he said right here. And there will be many. And behold, some, and behold, get this, some are last who will be first. That's the Gentiles. The Gentiles Gentiles have been last in God's program all throughout history. They didn't get the promises. They didn't get the covenants. They didn't get the prophets. They were last, but now they're going to be first. Things change. With the coming of Christ, the institution of the church, God is changing his, the way he's dealing with people around the world. Now he's the savior of the world in a new way, and many Gentiles are going to come. And that's, that was the birth of the church. And the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, so the Gentiles who once were last, historically speaking, they're going to be first. And some of the first, Jews, the Jews, you're going to be last. And that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. Collectively, Israel as a nation, Jews as a people, have for the most part rejected their Messiah. It's been true for 2,000 years. They are partially hardened, not completely hardened. They are partially hardened, says Paul in Romans 9 through 11. And they're partially hardened only for a time, only for a season. They're going to be softened in the future at the end of the age when finally the entire nation of Israel is going to turn to their Messiah and weep over him whom they have pierced. That'll be a glorious day. But in the meantime... The Jews are last, and they put themselves there out of unbelief. Now, can you imagine Jesus' teaching, saying again, once again, uh, oh, who's going to, basically the question is, who's going to be saved? And he's saying, well, you, all you Jews aren't. You're going to end up in outer darkness in hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the Gentiles are the ones that are going to be saved in mass. That was his message. Well, you could imagine, if you're Jewish listening to that message, it's got to be shocking and alarming. But imagine all those Pharisees sprinkled out through the audience who heard this. What do you mean? 
we're not going to be saved, us Jewish. God's people, God's special people. And to say that the Gentiles are going to be saved, that, that had to have infuriate them to no end. The Pharisees. That's our context. I'm going all over this because of verse uh, 31. Let's pick up there. So Jesus finished saying this. And the, the beginning of the phrase, verse 31, is very important. Just at that time, says the New American Standard. I think King James says, in the same day. Literally, the Greek text says this. In that very hour. In that very hour. Aura is the Greek word. That's where we get the word hour. Right at that time. In other words, in this context. With these same people who just heard the scandalous thing that Jesus just said. Few of you Jews will be saved. And all kinds of Gentiles are going to be saved by God. So it's on the heels of that message. Verse 31. Just at that time. Literally, in that very hour, some Pharisees, we've met these guys before, approached, I don't know how they did this, because I don't know how big this crowd is, but if it's anything like uh, Luke 12.1, the crowd, remember, there were tens of thousands of people, and they were crushing in on one another. And these Pharisees, they managed to squeeze themselves into the front of the crowd. This is a different crowd, so I don't know. Maybe it's a small crowd. But just at that very hour, some of the Pharisees approached Jesus, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Go away from where? Well, he's in Perea. Verse 32. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, Well, you go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons... And perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish or die outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house, Jerusalem, is left to you desolate or empty. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Where's that from? Well, that's Psalm 118, one of the psalms of ascent that they said around a specific time of the year the Jews did as they were working their way towards the temple for worship, and they had these short psalms, Psalm 18, one of the psalms of ascent. And this verse comes from that. It's a, it's a prophecy as well about the coming Messiah, that the Messiah is going to be recognized, the Messiah is going to be praised as the king and fulfillment of Scripture, And so Jesus basically is saying, I am the Messiah, I fulfill scripture, that's me, the one you've been denying and rejecting. And from your own lips as Jews, at some point you're going to say to me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, when does does that happen? Well, it happens at least two times. It happens at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when all the crowds of Jerusalem are with palm branches and their jackets, and they're praising him and welcoming him, and they're shouting a lot of scriptures, including this one. 
when else is this going to be said? This is also going to be said at the very end of the age. At the end of the age, when Jesus comes in glory, when he's in his resurrected body and he comes to reign and his king is king of, and lord of lords on the earth, he will be praised and welcomed by people with this very phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of those times, it's insincere and in total ignorance when the Jewish people said it. That's at the triumphal entry. The second time it said, they say it with full conviction and understanding as they're enlightened by the Spirit of God because they're saved, and that's the end of the age when finally Israel and all of God's people welcome Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. So there's our passage for the day. So let's go back and uh, pick it up. On your outline, I just gave you three points just so that we could walk through on the bulletin there. So if you have your bulletin, uh, you can follow along. And uh, the first point I put there is on verse 31 to 33, and it's about Jesus' death. If you were discerning carefully the words as we read through the passage, there is a theme. What's the overriding theme here in, in these verses from 31 to 35? It's Jesus' death, because it's explicitly mentioned um, a few times, starting at verse 31, when the Pharisees said to Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. He wants to murder you. So there it is. It's introduced. The thing. Someone wants to kill you. Death. Uh, verse 32, Jesus said, I need to reach my goal. What is his goal? He came to die. So there's death again. That's his goal. He will say that in John 19 when he's on the cross. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit in death. Verse 33. Uh, I must journey on today and tomorrow while I have opportunity to minister. But on the next day, there will be a next day, and that's the, the third day. That's when I will give my life. That's when I will perish. That's verse 33. It says, perish, perish. I, I must perish in Jerusalem. Death in all three verses. Verse 34 is explicit. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, that murders the prophets. Is Jesus a prophet? Yeah. Is he a prophet of Israel? Yes. He's the greatest prophet of Israel. Even though he was the God-man, he was also a prophet of Israel. The prophet. Deuteronomy 18, the greatest prophet. Death again, verse 34. And then verse 35, he will depart by virtue of death. And then he'll return at the end of the age. So what is this passage about? This is about death, Jesus' death. That's the whole point. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. I've shared before that my, I grew up Roman Catholic, uh, going to 12 years of Catholic school, all 12 years having math and science and spelling. P.E., my favorite class, of course. And religion. It's called religion. Not Bible class. For 12 years. Three different Catholic schools. Every year you had religion class, just like 50 minutes like every other class. Not Bible, because you don't study the Bible. 12 years of religion class at the Catholic school, never studied the Bible. So I was completely ignorant of the Bible. Talked about Jesus, yes. Talked about it, but studied Catholic doctrine and Catholic interpretation of some of the Bible, along with the Apocrypha and icons and Mary and all that other stuff. 
but never taught the Bible. So I had this really convoluted, mixed-up idea. If you asked me as a Catholic when I was growing up, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said, yeah. But if you were to ask me about who Jesus was, I would have tried to explain it, why he came. I would have struggled. Certainly wasn't a biblical view of Jesus. But I explicitly remember when I was in junior high, high school, thought I believed in Jesus. I thought I loved Jesus. I prayed to Jesus and Mary and other illegitimate prayers. But anyway, there was a lot of ignorance there. But when I started reading the Bible when I was in college at age 19, with the Gospels, the, the one thing that jumped out, most of all, that was revolutionized my thinking, was who Jesus actually is according to the Bible and why he came. I don't think I was taught that as a Catholic for 18 years. And if I was, I wasn't paying very good attention. Did I believe that Jesus died on a cross? Yeah, of course you do as a Catholic because there's the crucifix. It's where Jesus is actually still hanging on a cross. It's not just a piece of artwork. It's an icon. You pray to it. You kiss it. You adore it. It is a means of grace by which you can earn some forgiveness of sin. That's the crucifix. But I never understood why Jesus died. The one thing I remember as a Catholic for 18 years was that I, I believe that Jesus died as a helpless victim. So I felt sorry for him. And routinely, man, I, I wish Jesus didn't die. Why couldn't he get out of it? There's a lot of different things he could have done. He should have got out of it. He should have saved himself. That was my view all the way up until 19 years old. That was a common Catholic view where I went to school with Catholics that I knew and in my family. In other words, if I had my preference, Jesus shouldn't have died. He should have got out of it. That was tragic. It wasn't planned. It was spontaneous. It overcame him. He was surprised by it. There was no purpose to it. didn't accomplish anything. It just makes me sad. He's a good moral example. He endured suffering without a word. So he's a moral model, moral example. That's actually the view of many people who call themselves Christians of the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ, the moral influence theory. Jesus died and set a good example for us of how to be martyrs, how to suffer in the face of persecution. It's completely unbiblical. That is not the purpose of Jesus' death. But that's what I was taught. That's what I believed. Then I read the Bible. I read the Gospels, read the New Testament, and became crystal clear. Jesus died. For a specific purpose. If I were to ask you as a Christian, why, why did Jesus die? We've talked about that. And then also the question is, who killed Jesus? Because this passage is about who's killing Jesus. Who kills him? Pharisees, verse 31. Pharisees approached Jesus and said to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. By the way, isn't that encouraging uh, that the Pharisees want to help Jesus? I mean, did you get warm fuzzies when I read that verse? Why, why are you laughing? They, look at the text. Just at that time, the Pharisees approached, they, literally the Greek text, they came up to him, kind of got in real close proximity, close to God in his face, but came right up to him, face to face, the Pharisees, and they were saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now they're trying, they're warning him so he can save his life. I don't know why you don't think that's a good thing. Pharisees, they're, they're looking out for his best interest. 
Well, I don't believe that. I was surprised when I was reading through the commentary. There was more commentaries than I could count where the commentator said, oh, this is great. Because uh, there's nothing in the text to say otherwise. There is literally, and that's true, nothing in this text uh, that says that the Pharisees had an illegitimate motive because there are passages where it says that. right? They say one thing or Jesus knowing their thoughts. doesn't say that here. It's just take it at face value right there. The Pharisees approached Jesus and said, uh, go away, Herod wants to kill you. And so several commentators say uh, the Pharisees uh, are legitimately with a good motive warning Jesus at this point. So this is great. And this is the providence of God. And I'm thinking, where, what book have you been reading in Luke 13? Um, they're liars. He's already castigated them as liars. So, and when people say, well, there's nothing in the immediate text here to indicate that the Pharisees uh, are not insincere. And I said, well, yeah, there is. I think verse 31 at the beginning of the verse, it says just at this very hour, there's a connection there. That's the point. Connect what you're reading in verse 31 with the immediately previous verses. And what did they say? You're going to hell, Jew. And the Gentiles are being saved. Now, don't you think that would kind of get the Pharisees worked up in the audience? I think it did. Just at that hour, then, having heard this, some of the Pharisees approached Jesus and said to him, Go away! Where was he? He was in Perea. Well, what's Perea? Well, it's not Jerusalem. We don't know which Pharisees... uh, these are, there were Pharisees up in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, running the synagogues up there, and the religion up there. And there were Pharisees down in Jerusalem as well. There were thousands of Pharisees, actually. In all the towns, all the villages, basically where you've got a synagogue, there's a bunch of Pharisees. And they're all on the same page. They believe the same thing. Um, so they said to Jesus, go away. Leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. I think they're insincere. I think they're in cahoots with Herod. How do I know that? Uh, Well, just the four Gospels pretty much tell us that. Remember who was it that wanted to arrest and kill Jesus the week of his death? It It wasn't just the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests. The Gospels say it was also the Herodians. They were in cahoots. Mark chapter 8, Jesus talking to the entire, to the multitudes, and he warned them. And he said, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Interesting. They seem to have the same agenda. They are definitely in cahoots. They're talking. They want Jesus eliminated. He's a threat to them all. One thing that just jumped out in my mind when I first read this. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, go, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus is age 33. I just, that brought me back immediately to when Jesus was born. And the angel came to Joseph and said, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, that was sincere. That was the angel of God. 
And Joseph and Mary, and they took baby Jesus, and they went to Egypt for a couple of years until Herod the Great died. Who's Herod the Great? He was a horrific, maniacal puppet king of Rome who kind of ruled over the area of Israel when Jesus was born. He wanted to slaughter. He slaughtered all those babies in Bethlehem. He was threatened by Jesus. He was the father of this Herod in verse 31. Verse 31. So I don't know if these Pharisees knew that Herod the Great threatened to kill Jesus, and as a result, Jesus' family fled Herod out of the town to get away from being murdered. Could be. And maybe the Pharisees knew that. Oh, by the way, Jesus, yeah, remember uh, Mary? Remember she took you when you were a baby? Or at least remember the stories they told you that you were in Egypt? Running from Herod, you need to do that again. Well, they don't tell them where to run. Leave here, go away, leave here. Could be because we just don't know what they're thinking. Herod wants to kill you. Let's go. I want to talk about the main characters in this story just to set more of the context of who this Herod was. And let's just be reminded of who the Pharisees are in the event that you're in your study Bible and the guy says, oh, this is great. The, Her- the Pharisees are looking out for Jesus. Say, well, not based on the context. At the beginning of verse 31, the context of verses 22 to 30 and the context of the entire book of Luke. I know we've been going kind of slow through Luke here, so one of the problems with that is you lose the big picture and the continuity and the flow of the book. But one of the unique distinctives about the Gospel of Luke, and if you were to sit down and just read it, in a, if you took three straight hours, you could read through the Gospel of Luke. And if you just read through the whole thing, one thing that you would see just keeps coming up again and again and again are the Pharisees. Every step of the way from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And 100% of the time, it is negative. And that's happened already many times prior to chapter 13. So uh, the leader has been warned in great detail repeatedly from Luke. So that when Luke says in verse 31, and he says, Just at that time, some Pharisees, you should be on guard. Five alarms should go off in your brain. Well, let's just look at a couple, because it's been a while. Uh, Let's go to the very beginning, and we'll just go quickly. The true character and nature of these Pharisees and what they thought about Jesus' ministry. At the very beginning, so Jesus is age 30. Uh, God calls him, the Father calls him to ministry. He gets gets baptized uh, by John the Baptist. The Spirit of God comes upon him to lead him in ministry for the next three and a half years. His first duty is to be tested with the temptations in the desert. He does it flawlessly. He is the sinless son of God. He comes out of the desert, having been tempted by the devil, and then he immediately returns to Galilee, where he grew up into his hometown. Here I am, family and friends. Your Messiah, Joseph the carpenter. Prior to this, he hasn't really said a word, hasn't preached a sermon, hasn't worked a miracle. He's just Jesus the carpenter, for all they know. Mary's son. Then all of a sudden he starts preaching, teaching, doing miracles. The power of the Spirit was upon him in Luke 4.14. So news about him in his hometown spread throughout all the surrounding district. There was a buzz about him everywhere around Nazareth, all of Galilee, verse 15. And he began teaching in their synagogues. And he was on the circuit 
And he was praised by all. That's a key phrase right there. He was praised by all. So there was a warm welcome at the very beginning of his ministry. Praised by all. Came to Nazareth, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue. Uh, on the Sabbath, stood up to read the scripture. He read from Isaiah 60. He reads the scripture, just a couple of verses. Closes it and says, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd's looking around, what in the world does that mean? Because they didn't know. Nevertheless, verse 22, he taught in a way that no one else taught. He was authoritative. He was clear. He spoke truth like they'd never heard before. And as a result, verse 22, and all were speaking well of him. Okay, put those two phrases together. He was praised by all in verse 15, and then in verse 22, after his teaching, it says, they were speaking well of him. As he's teaching in the synagogue in his home turf here in Nazareth. He says a few other words, and then in verse 27, it's the same same scenario. Jesus tells a little story, quotes from the Old Testament, verse 28 He's in the synagogue with the same crowd who were speaking well of him and praising him. And then all of a sudden there's a 180 and everybody turns everything on its ear. In response to what he just said, verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Jesus said something between verse 22 and verse 29 where they went from speaking well of him and praising him to being filled with rage. They were filled with so much rage. You know what they did? They got up in the middle of the synagogue service, and uh, they attacked him to try to kill him, to, to take him out of the city and, city and stone him to death. This is the beginning of his ministry. And he eluded them, and he whoosh, slipped away and whoosh, dis- disappeared. Well, what in the world did Jesus do or say that made him so angry? Well, verse 27, and, and you read through it, and you, you probably don't even catch it. He tells the story from the Old Testament, he says, And there, was, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The Syrian. Oh, think Syrian, think non-Jew. Syrian, think pagan. Syrian, think Gentile. Syrian, think not a son of Abraham. Syrian, in the Pharisee's mind, think dirty, sinful, evil, wicked, Gentile. God hates the Gentiles. God won't save the Gentiles. They're worse than humans. That's what set them off. The idea that God would actually love Gentiles and save Gentiles was completely unthinkable to many of the Jews in Jesus' day. And that's most of you. It's me. I'm not a Jew. Unthinkable and even more unthinkable to the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, because they were complete, total religious Hypocrites, as arrogant and as prideful as they could be, they called Abraham their father, and they literally believed that they were going, they were right with Yahweh because they were born Jewish. That's how you get right with God, is you, you're born a descendant of Abraham. What does that mean? If you're not a descendant of Abraham, if you're a Gentile, there's no chance for you. There is no hope. You're a dog. So they are just completely... Enraged, They try to kill him. Uh, one chapter later, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus goes on. He's doing his ministry. Uh, he does a miracle. He heals the guy that was, they tore the roof open, dropped him down. 
He's a paralytic. And he says in Luke 5, verse 20, seeing his faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. Well, the scribes and Pharisees who were there began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Blasphemy. Uh, one who equates themselves with Almighty God and says you can do things that only Almighty God can do. And only Almighty God and Yahweh can forgive sin. Who does this man think he is? He literally, they knew that Jesus was claiming to have the power of Almighty God himself. Jesus was claiming to be God. One with Yahweh, they got it crystal clear. Your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy. So here we are, we're off to the races. This is the beginning of his ministry. And then just it's virtually chapter after chapter. I'm not going to go through them all. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 7. Those are two other different incidents. Then there's a couple of times where he gets invited to Pharisees' homes and lunch, and he ruins the lunch at the Pharisees' house. Remember that? Because he's so rude and impugns them all of sin and calls them hypocrites in their own home, the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is how it's been going. So the Pharisees early on, actually it even goes earlier than that. It really started in John chapter 2 when Jesus did his first miracle when he turned water into wine. And right after that, he went to the temple and he cleansed the temple in public, probably during a feast time. And he turned over the tables and made a whip and chased them all out, quoting scripture and condemning them publicly. And who was he condemning? The leadership of Israel. That would be the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And from that day forward, they sought to kill him. What have the Pharisees been doing for three and a half years? Hounding him, looking for an opportunity to arrest him, to kill him. So when you read through the Gospels, never do you find an incident where there's a friendly Pharisee. Remember it said that the, none of the Pharisees submitted to the baptism of John the Baptist? Why? Because that was, an, that was condoning or authorizing the ministry of Jesus Christ. They refused to do it. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 23, seven times publicly calls out the Pharisees and castigates them and says, hypocrites, hypocrites, snakes, sons of hell. That's what Jesus thought of the Pharisees. And there were some things that made the Pharisees really mad, and there were reasons why they hated Jesus so much. And if I were to ask you, why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Three answers come to my mind as dominant. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Well, one is he claimed to be God. That was blasphemy. Number two, why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Because they were threatened by him and jealous of him. Because the crowds followed him as a religious rabbi who was not trained in their schools. Why else did the Pharisees hate Jesus? Probably one of the worst ones is because Jesus was going around saying that the Gentiles could be saved. Jesus was going around saying the God of the Old Testament... Uh, the lover of Israel, Yahweh was his covenant name. Yahweh loves Gentiles. Gentiles can be forgiven of sin. Gentiles can join the kingdom of God. That was completely unacceptable. From many of the Jews' perspective, especially the leadership, especially the Sadducees and Pharisees, they would have none of it. So these are the reasons why they want to shut him down. Another one is he would point their, his finger in their face and say to the Pharisees, you, publicly, you are religious hypocrites. You're leading people astray. You're, you're, you're sons of hell and you're making 
uh, disciples who are twice the sons of hell. John 8, where it culminates, remember that? He said, you are of your father, the devil. You know what? You are descendants of Satan himself. I mean, that would probably make you mad. If somebody said that to you, well, you're a son of Satan. So they had nothing but complete, total, unmitigated animosity and hatred for Jesus Christ. And the scriptures explicitly say that they were literally, from that day on, trying to find out a way that they can kill him. It's been going on for three and a half years. But my first point in the sermon here is, in light of Jesus' response, uh, go away. Herod wants to kill you. Now, why are the Pharisees saying this? Back to Luke 13, 31. Uh, well, a couple of reasons. They want to intimidate him, right? I mean, they're, they're in positions of authority. They are in the know, the Pharisees. They are the leaders of the Jewish people. They intimidated people. They could threaten to de-synagogue, un-synagogue anybody and totally ostracize them from Jewish society. They had incredible power. They had incredible sway. People feared their word. And they go up to Jesus and say, Herod wants to kill you. And he is not uh, threatened at all. There's absolutely no, he has no fear of Herod. He has no fear of the Pharisees. He He has no fear of idle threats. Plus what they're saying is not true. He knows the truth. He's already said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm not going to die here in Perea. He already knows about his death. He knows the Old Testament scripture. He knows the Old Testament scripture predicted the timing of his death. We saw that in, remember Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27? That the triumphal entry would be at that specific time in history during the Passover week. And it had to be in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that. I'm not going to die here in Perea. Not knowing the scriptures. I'm not listening to you. And we see the evidence of that, that Jesus is not threatened, he's not afraid, he's not persuaded. He, doesn't, he hardly ever responds the way a normal person would in either receiving a question or conversation or a threat. Because what would you say or what would I say if somebody came up to you and said, go away, Herod wants to kill you, we'd probably say, yikes. He didn't say that. Or tell me more. Or where is he? Or which way should I go? Well, listen to Jesus' response, verse 32. And Jesus said to them, this is ironic. They come up to him and say, go away. They have no respect for Jesus. Even after all the miracles they've seen, the warnings he's given, go away. And then how does he respond? In like, verse 32, he said to them, go. What's that? Go away. That was the conversation. They said to him, go away and do this. He says to them, you go away and you do this. Herod, Jesus can't even mention Herod's name. It's just utter disdain. That's why he doesn't use Herod's name. What does he say? Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and tell that fox. This was really rare of Jesus to do this. To call somebody a name and use a term of derision in doing it. He reserved that for one kind of people. Right? Public, compromised, religious hypocrites. He even showed more respect to Pilate. As corrupt as he was. And Roman soldiers. But public, 
powerful Jewish religious hypocrites who distort and compromise the pure religion of Yahweh and mislead people to damn their souls forever? That was a different story. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites repeatedly, the scribes hypocrites publicly. And basically he's doing the same thing to Herod here. He calls him a fox. You tell that fox. What, you know, fox in our mind, what do we think? Some people, oh, cute and cuddly. And No, they're not cute and cuddly. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. What is a fox? And, and then today we think, oh, sly, the sly fox, the cunning fox, the conniving fox. Well, that's kind of a temp- contemporary American understanding. It may not even be what Jesus meant. If you want to know what they thought 2,000 years ago about fox, you just look in the Old Testament. It's there. It's in the book of Judges. It's in the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Song of Solomon. It was an animal in the land of Israel. Now, and, and animals had different significance. I mean, if he said to Herod, go tell that lion, that's a biblical animal. Even in the book of Genesis, lion, the Messiah was the lion. King, regal, royalty, ferocious, to be feared. A fox? No. The exact opposite. You put all those passages together in the Old Testament, what do you come up with? What's a fox? Completely insignificant. That's what it is. It's completely insignificant. Almost a nuisance. A varmint. Something you throw a little rock at. Go away. And that's how he caricatures Herod. You go and tell that fox. You go and tell that insignificant. This is profound. Who was Herod? Like I said, this is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas is his name. He was the son of Herod. So when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, Herod the Great kind of ruled over all of Palestine, Israel. And then when he died in his will, he divided up into four parts. And for the most part, giving it to four of his sons, of his many sons, because he had at least ten wives, and it's very complicated. But anyway, uh, one of those sons was this Herod, Herod Antipas. And in the, in the will, it said that he should get uh, a fourth of the kingdom of Herod the Great, because he chopped it up into four pieces. And the part that Herod, this Herod got, Herod Antipas, was Galilee. That's where Jesus grew up. And Perea, that's where Jesus is right now. So it is consistent with the fact that Jesus right now, where he's ministering, he is in the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas uh, ruled from the time his father died in 4 BC at the time of Jesus' birth all the way up until 39 AD. That's a long time. That's over 40 years this Herod Antipas was ruling. And he was just evil, wicked, immoral, idolater. He was not Jewish. His mother was Samaritan. His father was Idumean. So he's completely non-Jewish, and yet he's assigned by Augustus Caesar and Tiberius to rule over a part of Israel with this petty name given, King of the Jews. Herod was, I mean, there's four guys ruling over 
the Jews, and he's one of them, and he's only got a portion of it, and he wants to call himself a king. He's not really a king. He's the tetrarch, the tetrarch. Luke keeps reminding him, by the way, Herod, you're not a king. You're just a tetrarch, somebody who rules over a fourth portion, sharing that reign with other people. This was Herod Antipas, completely immoral. He was vicious. He was wicked. He was paranoid, but he wanted to be called king like his father, insisted he was a king. Yet he didn't have authority. He was under the jurisdiction of Rome. He had to do what Rome told him to do. And at the same time, he had to also do what the Jewish people did because there were more of them than him. So he's afraid of the people as well. Herod Antipas. Did he have authority to kill Jesus? He could, probably, if he got him in the right location. He had authority to kill John the Baptist, right? That's who this, who this Herod Antipas is. He had John the Baptist killed. Murdered. You go and tell that fox, not that king, that insignificant tetrarch who has no authority whatsoever over me, and I'm not afraid of him. Behold, Jesus said, I cast out demons and perform cures today. I cast out demons. Man, I have power over supernatural demons. Do you think I'm afraid of the little tetrarch Herod? No. I cast out demons. I perform miracles Today and tomorrow, and the third day, I read my goal. So he talks about his authority, his power, but he also talks about the timing of his ministry. I'm not going to be deterred. God has allocated, the Father has allocated a certain amount of time for me to do my ministry. I will do it in fulfillment of Scripture, and I will culminate it perfectly as God has designed in Scripture. And that is my death during the week of Passover. In fact, I will die on the day of Passover as the blessed sinless lamb. That's what's going to happen. That is God's plan. I know the goal, my goal, the end of verse 32. Jesus is in charge of his death. That's what he's saying. I am the sovereign one. I am in control. No human being ever born into this world has ever been completely sovereignly in control over their own death. We don't know when we're going to die. Except Jesus. He was sovereignly in control of his death every step of the way. As the Father revealed that information to him in his humanness, but the closer he got to the cross, the more details the Father revealed to him and the more the understanding of the Old Testament Scripture came into clarity in his mind. But from the beginning of his ministry, he knew he came to die. He came to die, and not only to die and be a victim, but he would be in charge of his death, the manner of his death, the purpose of his death, the timing of his death. Beginning of his ministry, I already referred to it in John chapter 2. He cleansed the temple, throwing stuff all over the place like a raving maniac with his whip, calling out curses from heaven on these people publicly. And the leadership, they questioned him on the spot, by what authority do you do? Who do you think you are? By what authority? What, who in God's name do you think you are? Literally. Well, speaking of God and Yahweh, he quotes Old Testament scripture. I have the authority of Almighty God, and to give you a sign to know that I am in charge, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. That's, that's my authority. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. What was he saying? Kill me, and you will. And when you do, I will raise it up from the dead. I will raise myself from the dead. That's from the very beginning of his ministry. And then All throughout his ministry, he says that he's not only just in control of his resurrection and his very life, he's also in control of his death and when he would die. Because for three and a half years, they're trying to kill him. 
And he's slipping away and slipping away and slipping away and disappears and poof, he's gone. Wow, how'd he do that? Couldn't he just do that the rest of his life for 75 years? Yeah, he could have. But there was a day that he was designated to die as the Lamb of God on Passover. And he was going to ensure that nobody's going to circumvent that or short-circuit God's plan. I will die when I'm supposed to die in fulfillment of the scriptures. I am in charge of that. I am the sovereign one. I'm in control of my death. He said that in John 10, remember 17 and 18? No man takes my life from me. No man takes my life from me. My father has given me the authority to take it up. No man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly take it up again. I have authority over my own death and my own life. Fast forward to John chapter 15. There's no greater love than someone laid down their life for a friend. Laid down their bios, biological, physical life. Different than Zoe spiritual life of John 3.16. Very specific. No greater love than this is that one, me, lay down my life. I will give my life sacrificially when I decide to do so and with my authority. Fast forward from John 15 to John 19. He's on the cross. He's been there for six hours. Only seven statements are recorded. One of the last ones is when Jesus knew that the scripture had been fulfilled. Can you imagine? Six hours on the cross. All the water and blood out of your body. He still retains enough consciousness to be able to meditate on the word of God. And it says, knowing that the scripture had been fulfilled. He shouted out, Tetelestai! It is finished. Mission accomplished. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I came to die for sinners and absorb the wrath of the Father. Tetelestai! And then it says, He gave up His Spirit. He took the initiative. That was His volition. He decided when He was going to die. Incredible. This is our blessed Savior. His death was predetermined. We saw it when Derek preached. The first prophecy in the Bible, right after sin in Genesis 3.15. The death of the Messiah was predicted. He would die and he would hurt the devil in the meantime. And that's exactly what happened. That's the theme all throughout scripture. The Messiah is in charge of his own death. When was the death of Christ planned? Well, we know it was planned during Jesus' life before he died. We know it was planned at least in the Old Testament. We know the death of Christ was planned all the way in Genesis chapter 3, 4,000 B.C. when the world was created. And then 1 Peter 1.20 and several other places, Luke 22, tell us that Jesus' death was planned before the foundation of the world in eternity past. This is God's eternal plan. The greatest event in the history of the universe that the Messiah would die for sinners. Jesus knows this at this point in his ministry. That is my goal. The end of verse 32 and then verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I must, very specific Greek word, uh, must means this is God's will. It needs to happen. Can't deviate it from this. There are no other options. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is according to scripture. This is God's sovereign will, a three-letter Greek word. That's what it means. I must journey on today and tomorrow while I have time. I still have an allocated time to do ministry in accordance with the will of the Father, which is about six months now. I am not afraid of Herod. He will not kill me. By the way, why did they want him to, the, the Pharisees wanted to leave Herod? Probably because in Perea, he's under the jurisdiction of Herod from Galilee. So the Pharisees 
maybe these Pharisees are from Judea. They can't kill Jesus, probably. The Sanhedrin doesn't have jurisdiction over Herod's domain in Galilee and Perea. So maybe they're trying to flush him out. Oh, Herod's trying to kill you, and maybe they know that he's headed to Jerusalem. Because if they could just get Jesus out of Perea into Jerusalem, then he's under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were a part of the Sanhedrin. And that's exactly what happens. This is a premature fleshing out. It's not going to happen now, but it will happen. But not according to their schedule. Because he has the goal of the Father in mind. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So there's another rebuke to Herod. You're not going to kill me, and you're not going to kill me in your jurisdiction. I'm not going to die in Galilee. I'm not going to die in Perea across the Jordan. I am dying in Jerusalem. And I will die when the Father says, I must die in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And he calls himself a prophet. So Jesus is completely in charge of his death. His death was predetermined. His death was planned. His death has purpose. By the way, there's a, I said that uh, no one born in the history of humanity was ever in charge of their own death sovereignly. And there's no one who's ever been born into the world that had a purpose in their death. In terms of when they die, there's a purpose. There's a universal purpose to it. A universal purpose that applies to everybody. A universal purpose that transcends everything else from God's point of view and has a spiritually eternal significance. Jesus' death is the only death like that. It's a significant, eternal, transcendent purpose it fulfills. And what is that? It is shedding his blood to assuage, to pacify, to alleviate the wrath of Almighty God and his utter hatred for sin. And as he's on the cross dying, he is absorbing 100% the full fury of the wrath of the Father on himself as a sinless substitute for any human sinner that would come to Jesus and plead forgiveness of sin and repent of sin and acknowledge that his death was a substitute for them so that they can be adopted into the family of God. That was the meaning of Jesus' death. The meaning of his death was that he absorbed the wrath of God so that God would relent and not pour his wrath out on you as a sinner because he already poured it out on Jesus. The penalty was paid. Justice has been served. And when you come to realize that as a human sinner and you, you go before God the creator knowing that you've been separated him because of your sin and you deserve nothing, the good news is someone has died for you. The infinite, perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has died on your behalf. You believe that. You embrace that. You cry out to God. You will be forgiven of your sin. In that moment, you'll receive eternal life, adopted into the family of God, a child of God forever. All your sins forgiven, past, present, and future. You'll receive the Holy Spirit of God to live in you from that moment for all of your days. You have nothing but hope in this life and even greater hope in the next life, living with God in glory forever and ever and ever. That is the good news. With that, let's go to lunch. <laughs> Father, thank you again for this day, for our time to worship as you have mandated in your word that the saints would gather together as the body of Christ 
but not only a mandate, it's a precious gift from you. We cherish that. We thank you for it. We're at a unique, unique time in history where we have the freedom to do that. Remind us of that so that we don't take that for granted. That we remain thankful for that sweet privilege. God, I pray that through your spirit you have encouraged the saints who have come here this day to gather. That if they had bad anxieties, they laid them into your lap knowing that you care for us. And also we thank you for the opportunity to sing to you, to give to you, and then be reminded from the truth of your living word in scripture of Lord Jesus, why you came, who you are, and this amazing truth that you gave your life for our sin. And you rose yourself from the dead, you ascended into heaven, you are the living Lord, you reign on high, you intercede for us. This is all just glorious good news. And through your Holy Spirit, we trust that our hearts are full and blessed As a result, we thank you. We give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.